You're so welcome uh, to the vineyard. If we haven't met before, my name's Andy. I'm part of the team here. And if you are a guest or a visitor, uh, we really do hope you feel at home and at ease uh, among us. Any parents of small kids in the room really angry that they didn't get? Thanks, Roy. An extra hour of sleep? No? Just, just me? Just me? Right. Uh, we have a pup, actually, and uh, she didn't get it either. She wakes up every morning at half six, but this morning was half five. That wasn't overly helpful. So, um, yeah, pray for the rest of my day. That's my... <laughs> yeah. I did get reminded of that in bed, that it was my own fault, um, that we now have a dog. But anyway... Um, so, so, quick move on before there's a domestic up here. Um, so, we are in week two of a new series that we're calling Blueprint. If you've been around our community for any length of time at all, um, or if you're new, maybe this is helpful information. We have a conviction here in Lagan Valley Vineyard, and the conviction is this, that we believe God is alive. We, thank you, thank you. The rest of you are like, wait a second. I didn't know this was that sort of place. We believe that Jesus is alive and that he is God and that he is active and working in the world. And the way that his work advances is is not by some sort of passive observance by us, that if we could just fill enough church buildings on a Sunday, then our nation would be changed Now, we believe that the the work of the kingdom of God advances as God's people occupy his dreams and his desires for the world. That we get to actually be a part of the most incredible, redemptive story the world has ever known. But it's not for ministers like me. It's for all of us. And so we we talk about this all the time, and there's a really valid question, particularly as people get excited and inspired about this. And the question is, quite simply, how? Okay, that may all be true, but what does that mean for me tomorrow morning when my kids want to kill each other, and I'm trying to get them out to school, and my boss is a grumpy fill-in-the-blank, and there's all sorts of other pressure and stress going on. What happens in those places and spaces? How am I supposed to actually occupy this thing in the midst of the complexity and difficulty of what we somewhat flippantly refer to as the everyday ordinary? How do we actually do this? And so this series in Nehemiah is our best effort currently at answering the how question. We've called it Blueprint because we're trying to be as absolutely practical as we can possibly be. And so Sue read from Nehemiah chapter 2 uh, this morning. If you, haven't, uh, if you missed last week, uh, let me give you a quick recap on what's going on in Nehemiah's life. Okay, so I'll not do the like, botched Bible history lesson that you got last week, but just to kind of start with Nehemiah 1. So Nehemiah is, is this guy who kind of was from Israel, or it's the divided kingdom now, Judah, Jerusalem. He's been taken into exile. So like basically another empire has come, ransacked the city and the country, and taken all of the their occupants and those that didn't escape the kind of uh, battle moment, they've been all taken into exile and he's now a slave. And Nehemiah begins with uh, his brother arriving into this city. Brother's name is Hakaliah. Sounds like he should be from Dramara or somewhere like that. But um, anyway, (laughs) 
Haggai arrives and uh, Nehemiah says, how are things at home? And he gets news that the city is in ruins, the walls have fallen down, the gates have been burned, and his heart is broken. And it says that he literally weeps for days. He's completely heartbroken and he weeps and cries and then eventually his weeping turns to praying. And you can read in Nehemiah 1 this prayer of desperation as he prays for God to do something and for him to be a part of it. And we talked last week about how the beginning of stepping into our destiny in God, the beginning moment of us actually moving from the mundane normal to the roller coaster of life with Jesus, it begins with us asking a question that is outside of ourselves. What's going on over there? God's call comes to us as we are provoked to think of something or moved by something beyond ourselves. And Nehemiah's life is flipped upside down when he simply asks the question, Hakaliah, what's going on over there? And as he's kind of broken by the news that he hears, as something stirs in his heart, as he feels like maybe God is asking him to do something about this, he then moves to this moment of confession. Not of his own mess, but of how great God is. For any of you that have ever heard the voice of God in your life before, particularly speaking to you about a situation or a thing that he wants you to get involved in, usually that moment comes with an overwhelming sense of inadequacy. God, you cannot be serious. You want me to do something about the mental health epidemic in our culture? God, you want me to do something about family breakdown in the nation? God, you want me to do something about that friend who at the very mention of Jesus looks like he wants to chop someone's head off and you want me to talk to them about my faith? The moment we hear the whispers of God, usually we get overwhelmed with this sense of, I do not have what it takes. And Nehemiah models beautifully how we are to respond in that moment. To confess who God is. And so you read in Nehemiah 1, he's like, God, you're awesome, you're all powerful, you've done amazing things. It's not because God's insecure in that moment, it's because Nehemiah's terrified. He's like, I need to remind myself who it is that's talking. God can do anything. And then he moves from this confession about how awesome God is to a moment of repentance. Really, really important. A moment where he embraces his own failures and those of his family and his people. And that's so, so important because we, the people of God, are not on this kind of conquering rant through the world. We are here as humble servants, wounded healers, as many would say. That our posture is anchored in repentance. And then finally, the response bit, which requires a ton of courage. And so that's kind of like a nutshell, Nehemiah 1. And then we move into this text of Nehemiah 2. I wonder if you ever read the Bible and like you've noticed random details that don't seem to make sense. Like sometimes you get big long lists of people, and if you're like me, you just skip them, right? 
Or like, it's really funny, Nehemiah 1, verse 1, it says, this is Nehemiah's journal, remember we talked about that last week, Nehemiah is basically Nehemiah's journal, it's like an ancient journal, it's his biography, it's his reflections on his own life. So he starts Nehemiah 1, verse 1, within the month of, in the month of Kislev, blah, 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 blah. And then you get to Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1, and he says, now in the month of Nisan, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, m- most of us, maybe just me, you kind of go, random detail, right? Maybe not. You see, the month of Kislev, scholars would reckon, is around November, December. And the month of Nisan is around March or April. Why, why is that important? Well, again, if you're like me, you read Nehemiah 1 and this powerful moment of encounter and calling, and then you read Nehemiah 2, which is this crazy moment of uh, a confrontation, really, with the king and a commission to go back and rebuild the walls. And if you just read it at face value, you think it's instant. You think that when God speaks, then it happens. Calling followed by destiny. Chapter 1, chapter 2, done. And then you try to live your life, right? And so you have a moment. Maybe it's at home. Maybe it's at a conference. Maybe it's in a gathering like this. Maybe it's in the car where you feel like God has spoken to you. And it's powerful. And sometimes it involves crying and you're lying on the floor and your heart has been broken for a situation or an issue or a person and you're like, okay, God, I'm in. I'm going to reorder my life around this thing. I am going to get people to pray for me. I'm going to declare it. It's going to make me really uncomfortable. I'm going to tell somebody before I leave, God has spoken to me about this issue and I'm going to move towards it and do everything that I can for it to happen. And then the next day happens and you go into work and your boss is really angry and you get a phone call that your kids are sick. And then something else goes wrong and you get a massive credit card bill and something else goes on and two weeks later, nothing has happened and you're like, God, what are you doing? Like I was there, I was on the floor, I had the snot, you said what you said, people prayed for me, I was in. And nothing has happened. Here's what you need to understand. Waiting is part of the process. Waiting is part of the process. And it is the fastest way to abort the call of God on your life to refuse to submit to the waiting. To be frustrated with how long it's taking to kind of just try to force things on your own steam to happen. There are literally months that pass from this moment in chapter 1 to chapter 2. We can only surmise what life was like for Nehemiah in those months. Probably pretty normal, pretty ordinary. Remember, this is his journal. The inference from the absence of detail is that nothing much happened. He didn't record anything. Months go by as he maybe prays Maybe doesn't. He's just waiting. He's just waiting. You need to understand that we live in an age that doesn't do waiting well. There has never been a time in human history where we humans have been more impatient. 
Just rewind even 50 or 60 years. For any of you that have very elderly grandparents, talk to them about kind of the pace of life and how that looked and worked and and what kind of happened on a day-to-day basis. Any of you teenagers in the room, just talk to your parents about the time when you used to have to wait a week for the next episode. (laughs) I know it's crazy. Some people are like, you had to what? Like you had to wait a week? Now we just don't watch any of it and wait till the box set comes out. And we binge for a weekend. Don't phone me. Don't text me. I'm in. And our Saturday is gone. And we start at episode one and we finish at episode 12. And a day has passed. That used to take months. There used to be, there used to be finales and all the people would talk about. And you get really excited about what was going to happen. You had to wait. Any Amazon Prime members in the room? Wave at me. Shame on you all. (laughs) I too am a member of Amazon Prime. Can I tell you something really weird that happens to me? Right? If I order a book and it doesn't come the next day, I get like righteously angry. I am like, Amazon! paid you my money, you made me your promise, you're a liar. The irony is, I probably have no intention of reading that book for about another month. But they said they were going to send it the next day. And they didn't. We are addicted to now. Like we're addicted to now. That poses a problem for those of us who are serious about Jesus and following him. Because his pace is kind of different. He's not really in a hurry. He's certainly not addicted to now. We don't wait for anything anymore. And our inner worlds are spiraling out of control. Listen to this old Irish legend. It's the story of the king who calls one of his warriors named Canaan to him and he says, Canaan, I've heard of a land far away full of the most incredible rubies and precious jewels and I want you to go and fill this treasure chest full of those rubies and jewels. And Canaan, like a good warrior, says, yes, king, and he takes the empty chest and he travels far, far distance to this far off land and he finds as the king promised all these precious rubies and jewels and he starts to fill the treasure chest but once he gets it filled up he discovers something that he hadn't thought about before a treasure chest filled with rubies and precious jewels is really heavy and he can't carry it by himself back to his king and so he thinks I'm going to need to go and recruit Maybe some people, maybe a tribe to help me carry this chest back to my king. But Canaan was wise and he knew that the journey was going to be long and difficult. So he knew that he had to find some people who were happy and content within themselves. Otherwise, there might be some dissension on the way and things would go bad. And so eventually he finds this tribe that are particularly happy and content. They sing songs and they generally get along. And he talks to one of the elder and he asks if the elder and some of his strongest men would help him go on this big journey to take this chest back to his king. And the elder agrees. And so off they go on this big journey. 
And every day begins the same. They light their fires, they cook their breakfast, and they take it in turns to carry this big chest. And days become weeks, and weeks become months. And on the morning after the third month, they light their fires, they have their breakfast, and Canaan is putting his things together to go. And he looks around, and he notices all of the men are just kind of sitting there in this kind of absent gaze. And he sort of quips a couple of, right, let's go, come on, pick up your stuff, let's get out of here. And nobody responds to him. A bit frustrated, he gets a bit louder. Hey, it's time for us to leave. And it's as if he's not even there. He can't even get one of the men to blink. And eventually he goes to the elder. And he says, what's happening? And the elder is in this kind of trance-like gaze and he doesn't even respond. And so he pulls out his sword and he begins to get really angry. And eventually the elder kind of comes back into himself and he notices Canaan and he says, what, what, what's going on? What's wrong? And Canaan says, it's time for us to go. You promised that you would help me carry this chest back to my king and now you're all sitting here in some sort of gaze. And the elder says, Canaan, we have traveled so far so fast. We have to wait here for our souls to catch up. I wonder how many of you are in that space. Desperate to run headfirst into the things of God, but with all of the hurry and busyness and chaos and stress, you're actually living dislocated from your very self. Full of stress, full of anxiety, full of worry. Convinced that if you could just somehow occupy more of the things of God, you would feel some sort of integrity. When actually, you're in the waiting. And you're not in the waiting because you've done something wrong. You're not in the waiting because God is angry with you. You're not in the waiting because there's some sort of punishment dynamic. You're in the waiting because God is doing a work in you. You're in the waiting because, you see, God wants to put so much of his authority and his weight upon you that your soul needs to be able to bear that weight. And you're in the waiting because God is working. Waiting is part of the process. I think it's really interesting that it's in the calling. It says God calls us, he reveals who he is. When God calls people, we discover his character in his heart. He calls people to go and reach people groups that have never heard of his extravagant love and grace because he cares about them. He calls people to take up the fight against domestic violence in our city and in our culture because he cares about those that are broken by it. He calls people to go into schools and nursery units to see possibility and potential in our little ones because they need to know that that is there. It's in the calling that he reveals who he is. But it's in the waiting that we discover who we are. It is in the waiting that you bump into your own character. It's in the waiting that you bump into yourself. 
And it's in the waiting that God says, I need to deal with this in you. Because it won't get you there. Waiting is part of the process. It would be remiss of me this morning to not mention uh, Eugene Peterson's passing this week. Some of you are maybe thinking, who's Eugene Peterson? Um, If you're familiar with the Message Bible, uh, Eugene Peterson uh, is the guy that translated that, you know, small piece of work in your life. Um, lots of uh, lots of books and lots of, of other things, and uh, he he uh, heroically died this week. If you want to be inspired, just go and read some of the reflections of his family and closest friends as he reflected himself over the past few weeks on this moment. It's just so, so inspiring. But anyway, let me read you what one young pastor from the States wrote about Eugene Peterson this past week. He said, Eugene is one of the last of a generation of saints who had the courage to go slowly, who had the faith to live in obscurity. You see, we have forgotten that it takes great faith to be small. Moses lived in wilderness obscurity for 40 years before leading the people of Egypt. David lived in wilderness anonymity before becoming king. Jesus himself lived the first 30 years of his earthly sojourn in quietude. As for Eugene, he spent 29 years tending a flock of saints in Bel Air, Maryland, before the world knew anything about him. It wasn't until the publishing of the message that he became known which means that it only took Eugene Peterson 65 years to become an overnight success. And even when he became known, he ran from the spotlight and turned down opportunities that most of us would chase. This is the man who said no to an invitation from Bono, the world's then most iconic rock star, because he was too busy translating Isaiah. Sure, in the last few years, they got together and formed a beautiful friendship, but not until it was time. Eugene was never in a hurry. But I'm afraid that much of pastoral ministry as it's practiced in America today, and I would argue most of the West, and and not specifically for pastoral ministry, is marked by our impatience with the pace of life in the kingdom. Instead of giving ourselves over to anonymity, we admire celebrity. While Jesus stripped himself of his robe to wash the feet of the world, many of our leaders in the church are recognized as fashion icons. Eugene called us to live the Jesus way. But every day we're seeing how easy it is to tell the story of the humiliated Jesus with all the hubris of Caesar Augustus. If we are not careful, we will live a long distraction in the wrong direction. But Eugene won't let us get away with it that easily. His life and writings remain a provocation for the church as we move forward. Just beautiful. Waiting is part of the process. It's part of the process. 
Shortly after I came to faith, God spoke to me powerfully about my future. And uh, I was naive enough to believe him. And uh, arrogant enough to declare it to the world or anybody who would have a moment to listen. And um, I'll not go into all that detail, but it largely had to do with the church in Ireland and all sorts of other things. I ended up moving to the States and uh, training out there. And, um, and then things kind of went off the rails. I don't mean like morally or like anything overly dramatic. Life just didn't go the way I thought it was going to go. We had, uh, I had, really quite uh, arrogantly declared to the world that I was going to, Dana and I were going to go to New Zealand for three months on honeymoon. We had a friend at a house down there and wanted us to come down. If we could get there, they were going to cover everything else. And then we were going to go and be a part of a really high-profile church plant in Sydney, Australia, for a while before we eventually moved back to Dublin to plant a church there. And uh, that was kind of the, that was the record that was playing before we got married. Anybody that wanted to know, that's what we were going to do. And then 10 weeks before our wedding, I broke my leg and lost my job. End of 2008, things were not, didn't quite work out as we intended. And we ended up living in a borrowed house in Portadown, full of borrowed furniture, with a 90-day clock ticking before Dana would have to leave the country because I was unemployed and we couldn't apply for a visa for her to live with me her then husband, until I was making a certain amount of money per year. I kept replaying the conversation I had with her parents when I asked them for her hand in marriage, and the promise I made that I would take care of her, and now I can't seem to get a job, and she's going to have to move home after we've been married. It's one of those, like, God, what are you doing moments, you know? And eventually I got a job here in Lisburn working for a church, and I remember I used to hide at lunchtime, like, I literally didn't want to leave the office at lunch. Because I'd go into Bow Street and people would be like, aren't you supposed to be in, like, New Zealand or Australia? I heard that you were, like, going to church plant in Dublin or some other really exciting thing. What are you, what are you, like, what are you doing now? And I'd say, well, we ended up going to Scotland for three days in honeymoon and I'm, like, a youth worker in the Presbyterian church now. It wasn't quite how I expected things to work out. And two weeks ago, we gathered in this room with leaders literally from all over the world to celebrate what Jesus is doing in these lands and to pray and dream about what we might be a part of over the next two or three decades. And I was overwhelmed with the sense of both arrival and beginning. I never in a million years thought I'd be living this thing out in Lisburn. Never. I thought it would be way grander than that. I didn't think it would look like a pet food shop with some paint on the walls. Let me tell you, I was overwhelmed as we gathered here for that conference with gratitude and the sense of privilege I have to be a part of what Jesus is doing in Ireland. The only thing that's changed over those 15 years is me. God's call hasn't changed. The words that he spoke over me haven't changed. But I am a different man. I am a different man. Waiting, you see, is part of the process. It's in the waiting 
that God does the work in us that we need him to do in order for us to occupy the things that he has called us to. Let me um, move on. Uh, We're going to come back here in a second, but So verse 2, Nehemiah goes to the king. The wedding is over. He doesn't know it yet, but the wedding's over. So he goes to the king. Remember, Nehemiah's a slave. So he goes to the king, and he's sad. Again, these are details that you think, you know, okay, a bit of minor commentary there, Nehemiah. Here's what you need to understand. Being sad in the presence of the king when you're a slave is liable to get you executed. Like, you can be grumpy when you're a spouse, Right? But you can't be grumpy when you're a slave. And Nehemiah goes to take the king his wine and it says that he's, he's sad. And the king notices it. Of course he does. Because you're not allowed to be sad when you're a slave. You're not allowed to look like you'd rather be doing something else. And the king says, what's going on? Why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Nehemiah says about himself, I was very much afraid. He's terrified. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Waiting is part of the process. The next thing you need to understand is that obstacles are invitations. Obstacles are invitations. There is no way for you to move towards the things that God is speaking over your life and not meet obstacles. It would be so easy for Nehemiah to have got himself to a place where he thought, okay God, I am ready. I will go. I have done the confession. I've done the repentance. I am filling myself with courage as much as I can. If you would just send an army to deliver us from slavery, I will lead us in rebuilding the walls. But I have a problem. I'm a slave right now. It would be dead easy for him to justify whatever obstacle it was that's facing him. But rather than do that, the king says, what's the matter with you? And he says, I'll tell you. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. It's very, very possible that the king would have responded with, take him away and chop off his head. But it's very interesting what happens. Verse 4, the king said to me, what is it? That you want. What is it that you want? Verse 4. Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. I love that. Don't you love that? Nehemiah prayed probably the most important prayer many of you will ever learn. It sounds like this Help! Maybe he didn't shout it like that, but he definitely thought it. You ever had one of those moments? You really want something to happen? And then it looks like it might happen. And then you think, oh, Jesus, help me. Like, I never, I never actually thought this would happen. I, I thought this was like that thing that we do where we just wait and be frustrated and nothing ever happens. And then a door opens and you're like, oh, my goodness. It's much easier to be frustrated with God when you're the other side of a door, right? But he opens doors. 
On the other side of waiting are open doors. And when the door opens, how will you respond? When the door opens and the Lord says, what do you want? I wonder what you will say. Name my praise. Lord, help me. And then he answers, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. I love it. The only qualification for Nehemiah, Nehemiah is a cupbearer, he's a slave. If it pleases the king, will you send me to university so I can learn how to rebuild stuff? That might have been my answer. But God is speaking to him about something that's pretty much impossible, so he's just in anyway. And he knows the answer. What is it that you want? I want to go and rebuild the walls. Some of you need to work on your answer. That's what you're in the waiting for. What is it that you want? I'm not actually sure. I never thought anyone would ask me that question. What is it that you want? Nehemiah should straight back. I need to go to the city and I need to rebuild the walls. He sees all of these obstacles, all of these outs, all of these ways that he could justify, God, you should call somebody else. He sees them as invitations and he steps into them. Understand that waiting is part of the process. Learn to see obstacles as invitations. And then finally, if you want to occupy the destiny of God over your life, ask for it all. Ask for it all. This is mad. This is where I think Nehemiah is a total legend that I can't really relate to. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. <coughs> so the king says, yes, you can go. If that's me, I am out of that meeting as quick as I can. Right? I've just got permission. This is crazy. God has done something miraculous. Thank you, Lord. I will figure the rest out. That'd be my impulse. Not Nehemiah. Verse 7. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall... And for the residence I will occupy. And because of the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. Like he's just seen the most miraculous thing imaginable. The king has said, yes, you may go. And then before he walks out of the room, he says, oh, by the way, will you pay for it? Will you pay for it? I wonder how many of us learn to occupy a part of the dream because we settle for it. Like we settle for it. I'm sure had Nehemiah walked out of that meeting in the previous moment, he probably could have cobbled together something of a wall and a gate. But he was settling for part of what the Lord called him to, not the whole thing. Nehemiah knew how to ask for it all. And I think we need to learn how to exercise that muscle. To refuse to settle for part of what God has said 
are part of what God promised. And the king ends up sending an entire army with him. There's a wee detail. Roy, why don't you guys come back up here? I want you to see this, because I, I find this is mad also. And this is so not Northern Ireland, right? In the midst of all of his asking for the king to pay for the wall and the gates and for the residence I will occupy. None of us would have dared ask for that, right? Like we'd be under a tarp on the street. God's destiny and his blessing over you are inseparable. And when he calls you to occupy the things that he's promised over you, they will have blessing attached. And we need the maturity to occupy that. When God says, I want to raise you up, who are you to say, I want to hide under a chair? That's not in the sermon. I just thought it'd be helpful. Um, I wonder how many of us are in the waiting. And maybe you thought you did something wrong. Maybe you thought there's some weird cosmic punishment going on here. Maybe Jesus is just doing the work that he needs to do in you so that you can occupy the whole thing. What if it's his kindness that has you in the waiting? And what if you learn how to posture yourself in that place so that you could learn to run towards obstacles and with boldness ask for it all when the time comes? If you're able, will you stand? But we're so grateful that you presence yourself in the waiting. And we say yes to your process. Corporately this morning, it's like Valley Vineyard. God, we say yes to the waiting. We say yes to what you need to build within us. Lord, I pray that you would send us out now in the power of your Holy Spirit. That we would go with life and hope and peace. And I pray that this week would have a different pace. Our inner worlds would be marked with a different pace this week. In the strong name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we pray.